Thank you, Chuck. Uh, so, yeah, my name's Ali, and if I've not met you yet, hello. Uh, you're very welcome to be here. And uh, we are continuing our uh, series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've reached uh, chapter 8. And in the, the House Bibles, that can be found uh, starting on page 1149, and then you'll have to flip to 1150. So a little bit of a tester there for you. Um, but and just during the kind of outline of this book, Paul has uh, been speaking to the Corinthian church. Uh, he's been correcting them on a number of things uh, in the first few chapters, about chapters 1 to 4. And then through uh, the last few chapters, 5, 6, 7, uh, he's been answering questions. And the, cha- uh, the questions in chapters 5, 6, 7, he's been answering on sex. And then in, in uh, chapter 8, uh, he talks about something different. So you'll be relieved to hear or maybe disappointed that we're not going to talk about sex tonight, but we're actually going to talk about culture. And uh, culture is everywhere around us, and uh, the definition that I found on Google is that culture is uh, defined as the ideas, customs, and social behaviors of a certain group of people. There you go. And uh, us Brits, we're known for many things culturally, I think. I think we're known for uh, the Olympic sport of queuing, or if it's not an Olympic sport, it could be an Olympic sport, and we'd win uh, bronze, silver, and gold. Uh, saying sorry all the time. Uh, you just sometimes run into two British people who are just apologizing to each other and they've forgotten what they're apologizing for. Uh, every problem in the world can be uh, given the solution that you can have a cup of tea. Uh, and also because it's been summer recently, uh, there's been that little fashion faux pas that you see you can recognize a British person anywhere if they're wearing socks and sandals. Uh, so those are a few uh, cultural things that us Brits do uh, well or badly, depending on your point of view. But Paul here is uh, talking about this cultural thing that they had uh, back in the day of uh, food being sacrificed to idols. And the context of this is that temples in the ancient world, they were like restaurants of the time. Families uh, would come to the temples, uh, they'd sacrifice an animal, they'd kill it, and then they'd have a meal uh, with that meat that was sacrificed as the centerpiece of that meal. And there was usually too much meat uh, for those who'd already partaken in that uh, to go around. So they would ask people from the street to come in uh, and to partake in this meal. And then also sometimes there would be still too much. And uh, the majority of food that was sold in the marketplace in the ancient world uh, originally came from that food that was sacrificed as an idol in those uh, temples to those uh, gods. Now this caused a problem for the the church in Corinth as... uh, they were not really sure what to do as they, they worshipped uh, the, the God of uh, Jesus Christ. They worshipped th- that God and they were like, well, these are gods that are being sacrificed. We don't really believe in these things. Can we eat this meat? And there were some people, there were teachers at the time that were saying that you shouldn't eat that. You should stick to the law. Don't eat anything that is unclean. And there were others who were much more liberal in their thinking and they were saying, you know, we know that these gods aren't real so you can have whatever you want. So they were, they were asking this question to Paul of can we partake in this meat. And further to this, uh, the Corinthian church, uh, Corinth was part of uh, the Roman Empire, so they would have been Roman citizens, and um, the Romans were really keen on their emperor worship as well. They were, they were quite into that, and they saw their emperors as gods. And um, so these Roman citizens, they would be invited to these festivals, and they had special rights at the meal. So they were almost like the VIPs there. And if they didn't go, that would be noticed, and that would maybe cause them trouble. So Paul here is sketching out what it means to live as a Christian in that pagan environment. And we can find out how he does this by reading 1 Corinthians 8. So it should appear on screen or you can find it uh, on the analog version of your Bibles or also on the mobile version. 
So Paul says this, Now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, through whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. I'm just going to uh, pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I just pray that in my weakness today that you would be strong. We would see your strength today, Lord, and that you would speak through this passage today. I pray for each person here just that they would find what they're looking for in you in this word. Amen. So Paul here, he's given the Corinthian church a way to live and a way to deal uh, with this cultural issue in the ancient world. And because it's about food, I thought I'd go for that really cheesy sermon structure about calling it a recipe to deal with culture. Uh, so we can use this, this framework that Paul gives us as, I suppose, dealing with culture in our 21st century rather than, I suppose, kind of food sacrificed idols. We don't really come across that too much today, but we do come across many, many cultural issues. And we can use what Paul says here as a framework for how we should deal with those situations. Now, I'm not a massive baker. Uh, I've never really particularly enjoyed it. And when I heard, first heard the hashtag GBBO, I thought it meant God bless Bill Oddie, and that something had happened to everyone's favorite person from Springwatch. Uh, but then I found out, someone told me that it was uh, the Great British Bake Off. And it's obviously on right now, and I'm sure many of you are uh, baking up some treats while watching it. Uh, I'm not watching it, but I have to say. But I do know, or have been told anyway, that to bake a cake, to bake something, you kind of need to start with an ingredient, that's always helpful. And then you add another ingredient that will maybe mix and kind of solidify the mixture. And then you want to add other ingredients that can give flavoring. And uh, that's where we're going today. So we're going to start with uh, our base ingredient that we have in our recipe to deal with culture. We're going to add in something else that will solidify everything. And then we're going to add another ingredient. And you can find out through this sermon. Aren't you so excited? Uh, so Paul gives us three steps on how to deal with his cultural issues. 
And we're not going to go into specific issues per, per se. We're just going to look at the framework of how he uses that, how we can use that in our own situations. So our first step, our first ingredient is that we start with love. In verses 1 through 3, Paul shows us that there's a contradiction between knowledge and love. And he's urging us to choose love. He says that we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So many in the Corinthian church, they were new Christians. They were trying to come to terms with their new identity in Christ and how to deal with this situation. They had people telling them to say, you know, you've got to do what the law says. You've got to stay away from all this stuff. And there's others that saying, you know better. You can eat what you want. You can be free. But Paul is showing us there's a different way to deal with this situation and that our first response shouldn't be knowledge straight away, but actually love is that best response of dealing with the culture. And again, the situation might not be relevant to us today, but the principle is that the same. Because whenever I find, whenever I say to someone that I'm a Christian or they find out I'm a Christian and they're not Christian, they, they always ask me questions that maybe start with, with why, like why on earth would you be a Christian? And they give me a number of reasons, probably cultural reasons of why I shouldn't be. So they say, why, why, why are you a Christian when you can't have sex before marriage? Why are you a Christian when you don't agree with what other people think or other people do in their lives? Why are you a Christian when uh, you're against homosexuality, you're against abortion, you're against other religions? Why are you a Christian when there's suffering in the world? How can you believe in God when there's suffering in the world? And whatever issues that we are confronted with, whether that's in our home life, our work life, we should always start with love. And Paul gives us two reasons of why we should start with love. The first is that love builds up. In that first verse, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the greatest thing that we can do in life is not know how many things are wrong with the world or know that we're better than someone else, but actually, we're called to love the world and to love those in it. And Paul is urging us rather to come in with, into a, a situation uh, with a superior complex or a spirit of hostility, that we should come in love, peace, and humility. Knowledge is a really useful tool. It's a great resource. And it's really helpful. It gives depth. But you can't start a response solely on knowledge. It can inflate our egos, it can make us feel better than the individual, and actually it pushes people further away usually when we want to bring people closer. Now I've done uh, many alpha courses, I've led many alpha courses uh, over the last few years, and I've never had a situation where I've been on an alpha course and someone who's been an atheist has started an argument with me, and I've argued with them, and then they've been like, you know what, you're right, I'm a Christian now. I've never had that situation. But I have had situations where we've had people who've been really strongly against the Christian faith. And they've come out all guns blazing from the start, calling us all sorts of names and things like that. And then we, in Alpha, what you do is you say, hmm, that's really interesting. What do other people think? You kind of deflect a little bit. There's a wee secret for you. But um, this one guy came in and he was really against and was just like, made everyone really uncomfortable. But over the weeks and over the time, we were able to respond to him in love. and We were able to show him 
that love, that community, that um, compassion that he didn't think existed in the Christian faith and completely turned his view of Christianity around. Every objection he said, every ridicule was met with love. It was that love that built him up and drew him closer. It wasn't the knowledge that we had, but it was the love that drew him closer. And uh, you may have been aware that it's been August, so therefore technically it's been summer, though I think it's been a classic Aberdeen summer where it's been sunny in the week and then come the weekend, uh, the heavens have opened, uh, which hasn't been great. And sometimes Aberdeen has that unique uh, kind of weather system where our, our summer is on a day of the week. So sometimes it's on a Tuesday, sometimes it's on a Wednesday. Um, but it's been summer everywhere else. So, And what we get when we're at summer, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, online or on DVD, TV, you get all these adverts that talk about uh, summer fitness DVDs. And uh, they give you all these workout options. And they say things like this. They say, you can use the 30-day beach body challenge or you can change your body and your life in six weeks for summer, which is quite a big claim, but there you go. Or 15 ways to get the perfect beach body. So it's all about, you need to have the beach body. When you're on the beach, you need to look good. You don't want to have the belly, you've got to have the washboard stomach. And uh, you know, I don't know about you, but I think to myself, yeah, yeah, I could do that. I, yeah, I don't, don't, want to have a, don't want to have a belly when I'm on the beach. I want to have a washboard stomach. So you start doing the workouts, you're feeling quite good about yourself, uh, and you start, to, you start to kind of be like, yep. Yeah. Got my beach body ready. And uh, maybe you wear that tank top that 51 weeks of the year you're not allowed to wear, but that one week you're like, yep, I'm going to go for it. Think you're kind of a big deal. But the problem with the beach body workouts, the problem with those kind of things, is that they're completely empty. For two weeks in the year, they make you look good. But for 50 of weeks for the rest of the year, that belly's going to come back, and it's maybe going to come back with a vengeance. They're designed to make us look good for that limited amount of time where the eyes of the world or so we think are watching us. But actually, they don't have any lasting effect and they won't make us any stronger. If you want to become stronger, if you want to become fitter, then you have to put the work in. You've got to work all parts of your muscles. You've got to do some cardio. It might mean getting up a little bit earlier. You've got to work on weights that work on all parts of your muscle groups, just not your stomach. When we love people, it allows us to care for the whole individual and not just focus on one specific area. And I really feel in this, this passage that Paul is calling us to kind of be weightlifters who can carry people to God, not just kind of bodybuilders who want to pose in the mirror and make themselves look good for a, a short amount of time, not have that superficial strength, but to be in training and to carry people to God. That takes time. That takes work, but it's worth it. So we choose to love, firstly, to deal with culture as it gives us a basis to build up people up and to carry the problems that they have and carry them to the one who knows, Jesus. Rather than puffing ourselves up with knowledge and fumbling through answers that maybe alienate people. We don't have all the answers. I certainly don't have all the answers. But we know the one who does. And when we come in love, then we bring God into that situation and into that uh, cultural issue. So love builds up, but we also choose love. We start with love because it emphasizes relationship with God. Paul finishes these three verses by saying that whoever loves God is known by God. And he's emphasizing that being a follower of Christ is being a friend of God and having a relationship with him. Rather than knowledge being about things about God, love shows that life should be about knowing God 
and be known by him. So we start with love as it brings God into that situation. It emphasizes that relationship that we can have with him. So uh, you may not be aware of this, you may not know, but uh, I'm getting married in about five weeks, which is very exciting. Uh, and I'm getting married to my fiance, Jill, which is obviously, that's good, I'm getting married to my fiance. Um, but wouldn't it be strange, wouldn't it be strange if uh, I met Jill, the only way I met Jill was through a book I read about her. So someone gave me a book and it was entitled, Jill, the amazing person you had to meet. And I thought, through that book I would marry her. Wouldn't that be strange? So I would get to the book, the chapter, first chapter would be her amazing smile. The second chapter might be her witty humor. Uh, the third chapter might be her unending patience. That would be a really long chapter. And so on and so on. And I would read that book and I would get to the end and I'd be like, yeah, Jill sounds like a really amazing person. I think I'll meet her. But I wouldn't make, I guess, I don't think I would, I wouldn't make that decision to marry her. But it's only through that I've experienced those great characteristics and more through relationship that I knew that I loved her and I wanted to marry her. And similarly, for some of us, maybe we've had uh, children recently and uh, you could read all the parenting books that you want in the world. You could find out everything that you needed to know. But until the first time you hold that son or that daughter, you realize that you would do anything for that child. It's not before then when you have all the knowledge it's when you have that heart connection, that relationship, that you realize that you do anything for them. And similarly, we can strive to know God. We can read every book there is about God. We can uh, listen to every sermon there is about God. But if we don't have that relationship, then we won't know him. And we won't be known by him. Erwin McManus, who's one of my uh, favorite preachers, says this about the subject. He says, faith isn't formed by information. Faith is formed by intimacy. It's not about everything that we can know, but it's about by knowing him and being known by him. And we need to build on that relational love. And knowledge is useless without relationship. So when dealing with those cultural issues, we must start from that standpoint of love to build those up and to emphasize uh, relationship with God and bring him into the conversation. So maybe for some of us here tonight, we've, we've been, um, I suppose, bombarded with cultural issues and we've got fed up and tired of, of kind of dealing with them humbly, but actually we've, we've started just to, to argue back and to just throw knowledge at that situation. But actually, Paul is showing us that we need to love people first, no matter how many questions they ask, no matter how many difficult questions they are. We need to start with love and to love and care for that individual first and foremost and start from that standpoint to bring God into that situation and to show Christ to others. So our first ingredient in our little recipe here is that we, uh, we deal with culture by starting with love. And then our next ingredient uh, is that we add in truth. So in verses 4 to 8, uh, Paul then kind of lays out the argument of uh, of this kind of a situation. He puts in the points for and the points against about the uh, situation of food being sacrificed to idols. Uh, and for the most part, Paul agrees with the teachers of the time that yes, these idols don't exist and there is only one God. He says an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is uh, no God but one. So he's saying, yes, you're right. They don't exist. But what he does next is that he adds in the truth and he adds, and the reason he does that is because truth gives us a bigger picture. 
So instead of focusing on uh, that tiny little situation about that cultural issue, Paul is highlighting that we should bring that truth into the mix and that we should um, give that bigger picture of how we are to react to this situation. So I was just saying earlier that I, um, I study history as my degree, uh, which is great fun. Um, not massively helpful in the job environment at the time when I finished, but never mind, we got, we got through it. Um, but one of the kind of eras of history that I really enjoyed was the Romans. Um, I just found them quite fascinating for a, for a civilization. They were quite far ahead in their time of uh, all the things that they constructed and they built up. And, uh, and also their uh, artwork was quite fascinating. Um, now, I'm not much of an art guy. Uh, my probably crowning moment of uh, artistic achievement was when I did potato prints in like primary two. It all went downhill from there. Um, but what I was really fascinated by is how the Romans uh, constructed uh, a mosaic. Uh, now, you might not be uh, aware of what a mosaic is, but it's a form of art which uses uh, really small pieces of clay or pottery, and uh, places, uh, they're placed together lovingly, carefully by an artist to, to create a unified whole. Um, so you start with this blank canvas. It could be uh, a floor, a tabletop, a water jug, and then carefully, expertly, the artist would place each one of these tiles one by one, building up to create one big image. If you were to walk in halfway through, um, you wouldn't really see an image at all. You'd be thinking, what is the artist doing? There's like little bits of blue over here, there's a yellow over here, green. I don't know what he's doing. Just there's, there's no obvious explanation for it. But it's only until we see that full picture that we see what the artist was trying to achieve. So when we see the finished article that we write, yes, I can see the beauty for all it's worth there now. So Paul here is allowing the conversation to be opened up to the bigger picture of who God is, what he has done for us, not just focusing on that issue at hand, but allowing us to see more of God. He shows us what it means to be a Christian more. He shows us that when we use true knowledge, when we mix truth with love, we're able to expand that bigger picture and approach culture in that way. In verse 6, he states that there is but one God, the Father, through whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And he repeats that phrase, from whom all things came and who we live, to show us that that's what it's all about. It's about God, that he, he was there from the start. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And it's through him that we live. It's through him that we have life. He's shown us that we can use that truth to know um, who God is and what Jesus has done for us. He's not getting caught down in that argument of uh, mud flinging or backbiting, but he's showing us that we must use the truths that are in the Bible, the truths that we know about God, to expand our horizons and to see that bigger picture. So when maybe we're um, given issues like uh, we're asked about sex before marriage, we can cling to the truth uh, that God created man, God created woman, God created sex to be enjoyed in marriage, and that God was in the center of that. It was all about God, and that's the truth. Or when people ask us about the pro-life and abortion debate, we can point to Psalm 139 and say, before I knitted you in the mother's womb, I knew you, and that God knew us before anything. How amazing is that? We must lift our, lift our horizons and see the bigger picture that God has given us in the Bible, in his word, and cling to those truths that we know 
in order to give us an understanding of how to deal with these questions that we get asked about culture. He's urging us here to delve deeper into his word and showing us that we'll be better equipped to deal with the issues. Now, I like to think I'm kind of down with the kids. I'm, I'm 27, so I'm still clinging on to my mid-twenties. And the way I'm down with the kids is that I listen to Christian rap music. That's right. That's how down with the kids I am. And uh, there's this Christian rapper. He's called Lecrae. And uh, he, uh, in one of his songs, he says this. He says, The less time you spend with truth, the easier it is to believe lies. And isn't that so true that when we're away from the word, when we're away from God, we can be so easily swayed by detailed arguments or by people who sound like they know what they're talking about. But Paul is saying here that we need to take that comfort in those biblical truths. And we need to cling to them to give us that bigger picture. For Paul, the issue isn't solely about food, but it's about how we relate to God in our everyday situations. And I just feel for some of us that might be a real help, that we're, we feel we're maybe drowning in issues where um, in the workplace, in the home life, it's really hard to be a Christian. And we keep getting asked these questions. We don't need to know all the answers, but we can show others the bigger picture of who God is and how he feels about each one of us. So in our little recipe, we start with love that builds up and is relational. And then we mix in that truth that give us a bigger picture of God. And finally, we add wisdom that gives us sensitivity to others for flavoring. See what I did there? Well, tough for myself. Just the only one, though, that's fine. Uh, in the previous verses, Paul has been uh, agreeing with the leaders and teachers in the main about how to deal with these issues, that the idols don't exist, there's no power over us. But he finishes this chapter with a warning and also a challenge for us. The challenge is that we need to use wisdom to be sensitive to those who ask the question. This allows us to deal with uh, culture in, a, in an appropriate way and to correctly disciple maybe those who are new to the faith. In the last five verses uh, of this chapter, Paul is warning that we need to have that awareness uh, of others and their situation. In verse 9, Paul states that, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So all the way through these verses, Paul has been urging us to use that freedom and knowledge we have responsibly and think about the consequences of our actions and views of others in the faith. They may be younger in the faith and have just come out of situations like that that are very real. Uh, I like to think of uh, this man as one of the great philosophers of our time. It's Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. And he says this, that with great power comes great responsibility. And for this passage, we can say that with great freedom comes great responsibility. We've been given this freedom, but yes, we must use it wisely and sensitively to others around. Wisdom is important. In Ecclesiastes 8, it says that wisdom puts light in the eyes and gives gentleness to words and manner. And we need to use that wisdom to give that gentleness to our words when approaching these situations. To not go all in gung-ho, like I said before, and um, push people away, but to give that wisdom gradually that people can see where they belong and bit by bit where they're coming to be more like Christ-like. I've lived in a, a number of flats over the years. I've had many flatmates and I, I, I've loved living with other people. I think I've, I've been a pretty good flatmate, though um, there might be some people in the congregation that know my flatmates and could maybe disagree with that. Um, but a few years ago, I was living 
in a flat, and we ha- it was a flat of five guys. So there was five of us, and uh, we had a deal for mealtimes. Kind of, we were students, and kind of to save money, we thought that each weekday, uh, one of us would take a night, and we'd cook for the rest of them. Uh, so then you're only cooking once, because then the weekend, we would just fend for ourselves. So we thought that was quite a good way to save money, uh, quite a good deal. And um, one Friday night, one of my flatmates, Steve, he was cooking, um, but actually I was going out for dinner. So I already had plans, um, so I didn't need any food. However, um, Steve put on a lovely meal, uh, but then he also uh, brought in dessert. Now, dessert was optional, uh, but it was kind of frowned upon if you didn't bring in dessert. So Steve was doing a really good job as a flatmate because he brought in dessert, and we were all like, yes, well done, Steve. And uh, he provided six ice creams and four cookies for dessert. So it was an abundance, a bounty of dessert. And uh, I was offered an ice cream. I was like, I'm going out, but, you know, have a cheeky little ice cream to cleanse the palate for my meal. That would be nice. And uh, everyone else, so I had one ice cream, and then everyone else had their cookie and their dessert. So that was fine. So maths fans in the, in, the, in, in the congregation, you can work out that 4 plus 4 plus 1 equals 9. There were 10 desserts, so there's one remaining dessert. You can probably see where this is going. So fast forward to Saturday afternoon. I'm in the flat. I'm in the flat with my other flatmate, Bob. We are playing on the PlayStation and I get a little bit peckish. And I think, what's in the fridge? I'm a student, there's nothing in the fridge. I think, oh, maybe what's in the freezer? I look into the freezer, there's that one remaining ice cream in the freezer. I was like, ooh, quite fancy a little bit of an ice cream right now. And I, I go to my flatmate Bob and I say, you know, if I had the other ice cream, do you think that would be all right? You know, there were 10, five divided by, 10 divided by five equals two, ergo two, two desserts per flatmate, and he was like, yeah, I think that's fine. So I went into the freezer, I had the ice cream, it tasted delicious by the way, it was, it was one of the most, the best ice creams I've ever had, I'd literally just finished eating it, I'd put the stick down, I'd put the wrapper down, and Steve walks into the flat, and Steve, bless him, had been studying at the library all day, very, very hard, yeah, I know, what a guy, studying so hard, He'd been uh, really hungry. I think he'd skipped lunch, and uh, he was walking up, which was quite a steep hill. And because it was October, it was like monsoon season, so he was dripping wet. And he walked into the flat, and the only thing that he was thinking about, the first thing he thought about was that ice cream. And he walks up the stairs, doesn't say hi to anyone, through into the kitchen. He looks in the fridge freezer, into the freezer, the box, I'd left the box in there, so the box was still there. He looks in the box, I know, terrible. Uh, yeah, looks in the box, nothing in the box. He comes through, he sees the wrapper, he sees the stick in my hand, and he is furious. And rather than being a sensitive, well-rounded man that I feel like I am, I, I turned to Bob and I said, Steve, we had a meeting about it, so you just need to get over it. We ate it. So I had 100% of the knowledge there, but I had zero wisdom about that situation. I didn't think about my flatmate at all. I didn't think about how much he'd slaved over that meal. I didn't think how much he had studied so hard. I just thought about my stomach, basically, and thought about my needs and my, my way first. And similarly, Paul is showing us that we can have knowledge, and that's fine, but we need to use the wisdom and be sensitive to those around us. In verses 10 through 12, Paul says that, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? 
So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Paul is saying that when dealing with culture, we must be sensitive to those asking or those who are new to the faith and not make them stumble in the process. The church in Corinth would have had many new Christians. They would have come out of this situation where they would have been those people that would have been sacrificing food to idols. They would have seen that as an act of worship before they were saved. And even, they would have still been really real. Even the smell of the meat as they walked past the marketplace would have taken them back to that situation, taken them back to that darkness before they knew Christ. They wouldn't be able to use knowledge to split between the good and the bad of, oh, I can eat that, but I can't eat that. It would have all been bad. It would have all been before Christ for them. And they would have all been in darkness. And Paul is urging the church here to not use knowledge to make others sin and to face things that they can't handle as it's still too raw for them. Earlier on in this book, in chapter 3, Paul talks about spiritual milk and wanting the church to move away from just being on spiritual milk to being young in the faith. But actually, they're still not ready. They're still quite raw. And when dealing with that culture, we need to be sensitive to those around us. We need to be sensitive to maybe those who aren't Christians who are asking those questions, as there's usually a heart experience behind the question. For example, if someone asks about suffering, there's usually maybe that they've suffered real loss in their life. But wisdom, when we use wisdom correctly, it flavors that conversation sensitively. We're able to think about their needs before ours. Similarly, when there's new Christians asking those questions, we've got to be careful not to make them stumble. The final verse of this chapter says that, Paul says that, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul has given us that warning, not only from those on the outside, but also those who are in the church, and saying that we need to be a good example to those who are new in the faith. We don't want to be a stumbling block to others. And he's quite, Paul is quite clear that the penalty is high for those who cause the young in faith to stumble. And Jesus is too. In Matthew 18, he says that if anyone causes uh, one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And what Jesus is saying here is that he's fiercely protective of those who are young and those who are young in the faith. And we should be too. We shouldn't give people an opportunity to backslide. So that might mean if we uh, are meeting with someone that, who maybe has an issue with alcohol, that we don't go to the pub, but that we, we go for coffee instead. Or that if the pub is the only place we can go, that we don't order any alcohol, but we have fresh orange and lemonade all around. Or if we are meeting up with someone who maybe struggles with lust or pornography, that we don't go to the cinema and see the latest 18, but actually we see Disney Pixar's latest release instead, which will clearly be better anyway. But, you know, we don't want to use that knowledge that we have, you know, thinking, oh, I can handle it, so therefore they can handle it. No, we want to be sensitive to them and say, well, that's an issue for them, so we want to steer clear. We don't want to give them temptation. We don't want to let the devil have a foothold in their lives again. We use that wisdom to flavor our conversations and our meetings with others and to be sensitive to what they can handle. That might mean we might give up something we enjoy for the sake of others, but that's love, isn't it? In John, the writer says that greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
So Paul's recipe for dealing with culture is that we start with love that builds up as relational. We add in that truth which gives us a bigger picture of who God is. And then we add in wisdom to flavor our conversations and to be sensitive to those around us. Why don't we stand and we're going to pray.